welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm Miles Irving, and I'm going to keep the introduction fairly brief this week because uh, it's quite a long conversation. Um, but just to introduce Matty Rooney to you, who is this week's guest. And um, yeah, I'd just like to say, Matthew is a very dear friend, and I think I'm very fortunate to have quite a few friends who know a lot more than I do about something. Um, and Matthew certainly knows a lot more about mushrooms and particularly medicinal mushrooms than me. Um, so he's very, uh, very enjoyable and always a uh, very instructive person to talk to. I always learn a lot from speaking to Matthew as I do in, in this conversation. And um, yeah, so Matthew is, part of a company which he runs with his brother called the the mushroom table and they are cultivating medicinal and edible mushrooms from from wild spawn and they sell them at markets in london and matthew also does foraging walks and particularly mushroom walks in the autumn based in essex but he's just about to relocate to scotland and will be also doing the same kind of things there matthew he also runs courses on how to cultivate mushrooms, which is um, a very, very useful skill to learn. If you've been listening to other episodes, you'll have heard me tell the story of the uh, the lion's mane spawn, which um, we we got from the, the wild near where I live and that Matthew's now growing that on. Well, I'm really going to leave it that and and get on to the conversation, plus copious amounts of birdsong, as, as you'll soon discover. So where are you at on your medicinal mushroom journey just now, Matthew? Like, what's um, what's sort of interesting and unfolding to you? Um, I was still working on reishi, and I'm actually, well, tomorrow actually, I'm actually doing a talk on bees and bees and medicinal mushrooms. It's a fairly new thing. Bees and medicinal mushrooms. Yeah. It helps prevent colony collapse disorder um, by reducing the vibe. The, it's because it's Mushrooms are quite strongly viral. Okay. Um, so you actually make make tinctures from a lot of the um, bracket mushrooms here, like Ricci, um, Tinderhoof, Chaga, Turkey Tails, all the, all the sort of ones that are used commonly medicinally for people. Also work for bees. So how do you, how do you administer them to the bees then? Um, well, a lot of lot of beekeepers. Um, over the winter, they, they feed them um, sugar syrup to help them make sure they got enough food through the winter. Yeah. And you just put in um, like one mill of tincture to a litre of syrup, and that's enough. Wow. To keep them going. So yes, obviously they're tiny, tiny organisms. They don't need a lot. And that, um, what it seems to do is prolong the life of the workers. And that's what. Colony collapse is all about. It's the workers are um, dying too young. Mm. Um, Before all the jobs done. As yeah, well, yeah. So, so, so when, they, when they hatch from the pupa, they've got certain. You know, they, they, they start off in the nursery, looking after the next ones they're going to hatch, and clearing up, keeping it clean and tidy. And then as they as they get older, they move further away. And then eventually, when they get a certain age, they'll, they'll be recruited as foragers. Oh, right, so they sort of work their way up through the ranks and then foraging is yeah, the... Yeah, and that's the last thing, and then eventually then they'll the die. Kind of, yeah. But if, but if the, the foragers are dying off, yeah. then they get recruited as foragers when they're younger. Right. Because the hive needs the food. So they're not doing the duties they should be doing around the hive, which means that's when we get things like the viromite taking over, and then that's spreading the viruses, and the whole thing, our society falls apart. Because there aren't enough bees in the hive to look to deal with the, with the mites. Right. Okay. So that's one of the sort of housekeeping duties that, that gets neglected. Because yeah. And if they're not kept in check, they just take over. Mm. Yeah. So by giving them the mushroom, they don't get the viruses which the mites are carrying, so they stay healthier longer mm. and can do carry on doing what they're supposed to do. That's the theory. Yeah. But but people are seeing. Seeing good results from yes, trying yeah, it out. Yes, we tried yeah. it out with a couple, couple of beekeepers. Mm. One, one had just um, reishi, 
and the other one had a mixed a tincture with five different mushrooms and they both had um, good results. One, you know, the guy, the guy that had the reishi has had virtually no varroa this year and the one that had the mixed tincture, she's, she lost three hives over winter because they got too cold and got attacked by a thing called wax moth but the fourth one is now doing so well it's producing more honey than she got from when she had four hives. Wow. And she's, you know, they, they've got you know, these boxes you put on with the honeycomb, you've got the honey in it. She's got, she had 12 of them on there at one point. So yeah. Because it was producing so much. That's real husbandry, isn't it? To, to, to be bringing in wild medicines and helping so the bees not, to thrive. They're not just good for people, they're good for, good for everything. Yeah. So I don't think I've ever asked you how you got into mushrooms. Um, well, it's, and it's sort of, I suppose the first ones, the first mushrooms I noticed were um, giant puffballs when I was like I don't know, nine or ten, I suppose, coming up in the garden and kicking them about as kids do. But then when um, Roger Phillips put out his book in 1982, you suddenly you know you could. Like, was that the wild food book? That or, was the or, mushroom or book. Or the first mushroom book. Yeah, anyway, and you could then you could identify them, they give them names and. For the first time, because you know most most books you get sort of half a dozen pictures and you wouldn't have a clue what the rest of them were. So it really took off from there, just getting into you know getting into wild mushrooms. And of course he put in whether they're edible or not, which uh, is a bonus. And the books don't, don't bother doing that. Um, and then in the, in the mid 90s, um, we came across a guy called Malcolm Clark. Um, he's got a, a company called Gourmet Mushrooms Inc. in California and he was looking to set up a mushroom farm somewhere in Europe, he didn't know where and um, he happened to know my sister-in-law because of, because of medicinal mushrooms she was, she was using them um, reishi to treat um, AIDS patients Wow! in the, in the early, early 90s and that was a fact that was... Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a cure, but it prolonged it, which it produced the, all the, um, or helped their immune system, so they weren't mm. getting all the illnesses that, mm. that they would have had without, without the reishi on top of the AIDS. Yeah, so we got to meet him through through her, um, and um, that's when we set up the farm, mushroom farm, growing, growing mushrooms. Sort of, you know, discovering that you could actually grow more than just the button mushroom. And so, did you, did you, um, did you kind of take on the exact method that this guy was using, or did you, did you develop further like the? Um, well, when you grow, the thing about growing mushrooms is when every farm is sort of the basic method is the same, but every farm adapts it to their own environment and their own resources. Hmm. Ideally. You, you want to, it's a it's a sort of it's a low tech. You want to keep it as low tech as you can because mm. you can you can you can throw money at it as much as you like. I love your big piece of kit back at back at the place where you do everything. Yeah. It's called the an autoclave. Autoclave. Yeah. yeah. It's like um, well, it looks like a washing machine, but it is a pressure cooker <laughs> yes. kind of thing. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's a front-loading pressure cooker. Yeah. Yeah, well that's the vital bit of equipment if you're growing if you're growing mushrooms on wood. So that's to sterilise all of the. That's ster yeah, that's the, the, the sort of wood chippings and yes, sawdust. Yeah, so. yeah. The method we used was developed in Japan in um, after the Second World War to help uh, shiitake growers over there get a more regular crop mm. than, you, than you do when you're growing on logs. So instead of growing on logs, it, it was. A guy called Professor Yoshi developed this method of growing on sawdust, which speeds up the process about tenfold. So you get a crop. Because the mycelium can sort of eat through the sawdust more easily. Yes, it's already partly digested in a way, broken down, so mm. they can get in amongst it much more easily than, than a solid log. Um, so that's the method we, we basically use. Um, with variations. So you're doing, is it four main species? Um, 
No, it's um, seven. So you've got lion's mane, oyster, shiitake. Yeah, uh, we've got lion's mane and coral tooth. Oh, yeah. Um, two types of oyster. Okay, yeah. Shiitake, rishi. So lion's mane and coral tooth being the two... Two heresiums. Yeah. Yeah. When we're lucky enough to have both native, both those are native to the UK, one thanks to you. Yeah, yeah, I told a story about that one the other week. Um, and then the, the coral tooth turned up at the um, farmer's market, somebody came brought it to me and said, what's this? Okay. <laughs> and I thought, I, you know, when I saw it, I thought, oh, it's a lion's mane, because it was just a ball. Mm. A, neat, a neat round ball. But then when we grew it, this weird thing came out, and we thought, what the hell's going on? <laughs> it's not a lot of lions, mate. It behaves the same way. Didn't you get, didn't you get a, a little piece of the third one as well? Yes, the, yeah. You're not actually um, growing that one on yet. We're still working on that one. Okay. What's that one called? That's the tiered tooth. Right. Yeah. I, mean, I just love the fact that there's this stuff that is growing, you know. I mean, it's, it's true with the plants as well, but like the... the there's things all around us that have what we need, and and, and yeah, it's it's also sort of understated and unspoken, isn't it? You know, because yeah. we, we go up out of business and don't even know it's there, but like no, we're, we're surrounded by it <laughs> under the ground. I mean, we're sitting here in this woodland with all these great big trees around us, but there's more stuff going on under, under the ground. Than, down above the ground hmm. that we don't even know about. There's more. There's more biomass in the in the soil than than above the soil in a, in a woodland like this. You've got the roots of the trees. You've got the mycelium, and then I guess there's a whole bunch of the other there's, microbial there's, stuff. There's, like there's all sorts of microbial stuff. Yeah. There's, there's uh, microscopic insects, right? Springtails and um, bristle tails. And, Mass, loads of different types of worms. There's a whole amazing, you know, incredible stuff going on down there that we, we know nothing about. I suppose when people think about destruction of forests, you know, they would always be thinking about the above ground stuff, really. Isn't it? Yeah. But it just kind of adds to the the sheer weight of the catastrophe, really, doesn't it? When you think yeah. of well, yes. Losing. Yeah, when you take, you take the take the forest away, you completely change the, the climate. And quite often, you know, woodlands got quite thin soils. Anyway, so as soon as the trees are gone, that gets um, washed away, worn up, and nutrients get leached out very easily. And you end up you end up with a bit of waste, but barren land. I mean, I think this this thing that we're starting to do more of in the last little while um, which is to basically look into the you know these unseen worlds that are actually undergirding everything you know mm. whether it's our gut flora or to understand more just the complexity of our own physiology or to look at this like what's happening beneath the soil yeah and 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 like all this well I think you've probably got a better grass than I have this stuff that's going on with the um, the trees talking to each other via, via the mycelium I mean that's incredible isn't it yes yeah I mean we've got a, when you look at when you look at a woodland or, or a meadow it's not it's not a collection of individual trees or individual uh, plants it's the whole thing is connected under the ground by the by the by mushrooms through mycorrhiza so the whole not and it's not just between Similar species, it's the mushrooms are connecting different species as well together. So it's, it's you know when you look at any any bit of um, anywhere where plants are growing, there's it's, it's not just individual plants; it's a whole community hmm. which is connected by the mushrooms and bacteria. And but what are those? I mean, what what, what those connections are? They're allowing well, them to. To feed each other and yeah, they did. It does. Um, I mean, it's, it's, you know, the, the research is still quite, quite new. Probably in the last ten years, really. You know, when I was at university, it was 
there were these things called mycorrhizae and you didn't really know what they did but um, recent research have shown that you, the trees are able to, to use the, the mushroom mycelium to um, share carbon between each other uh, to send send messages to each other um, and just and a whole load of stuff going on that we haven't got a clue about and they're talking they're talking to the same species they're, they're talking to their children and they're, they're talking to different species so they can help each other at different times it's like that old phrase, you can't see the wood for the trees, you know, like the, 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 the thing that we, we do so much of with, with our kind of Western scientific paradigm is, is we just look at these units, don't we? And, yes, and, we, and we try and reduce it to a simple unit so that we can, we can study that and isolate it from everything around it. But the trouble is everything is connected. So we actually can't understand the tree unless we see the wood. Mm. Yes, you've got to look at the wood, the whole wood, as an organism, not just the individual trees. Yeah, so I mean like this, I said a minute ago, the, the, the fact that we can now see what's happening, you know, beyond what's visible. Mm. But the funny thing is that, that that you know that line of inquiry. I mean, it's incredible what you're saying. That it's the same with the gut flora thing. This is absolutely unfolding as we speak, yes, isn't it? Like yes. the, the insights that we're having, but they support these ancient perspectives that that saw everything as connected and and saw the well, the universe is living, let alone the biosphere. But um, but it's like once once these once we've gained these insights, then we do see kind of thing. You you you, when you think about the forest, you think about the interrelatedness and and what what's under the ground. So it's it is making that unseen stuff um, visible and visible in such a way that it kind of guides our, the way that we relate to it. You know, like. Um, I don't know, because I always felt when I got out into, um, you know, less managed spaces, yeah, or even quite managed spaces, really, like meadows and things, but, but just like where there was a lot of wildlife going on, I always felt a kind of presence, you know? Yes, you feel, um, yes, sort of contentment, yeah. Yeah, like you can sort of lean back on it, and it's or or, or you're being you're being. Um, but it's, it's it's like the Japanese um, idea of um, forest bathing. Right. Yeah. Well, it just it, it's good for the for the spirit just to be just to be in in amongst that community of other organisms. And the idea that they. They know that we're here, and that somehow we've been accommodated. That's 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 mm. something that I think I intuitively felt this kind of nourishment, but I couldn't explain it. You know, I once said, "Well, some I mean, the, some of the messages the plant the trees are putting out, and you know, we've got um, plant pheromones talking to each other, and actually putting them out round right about six foot off the ground." <laughs> So it's right at our, where all our senses That's are. incredible. So when we're walking through the woods, we're, we're, we're getting bombarded by these pheromones. It's amazing. It's kind of the opposite of the sense you have that you've got Wi-Fi and mobile phone signals probably passing through your body and you just think, ah, yeah. what is that stuff doing to us? But, but to think of what you've just described, I think, what is that stuff doing to us? Well, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Are they are they trying to talk to us, or are they just talking to each other? But it's, it just happens because you know if, if they're at the ground level, they don't they're not going to travel very far, and if they're too high up, they get blown away. So six foot is about the ideal level. 
perfect to travel around from plant to plant and we just happen to be in the way and we just happen to benefit from what these medicinal mushrooms do for us what 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 you've explained it to me before but yeah i usually need these things explained eight or nine times and i need to be able to repeat it to somebody else and check them yes so what what's the thing about the chemistry of these medicinal well, mushrooms so one of the main compounds is the um, beta-glucans which are in the um, part of the cell wall of all mushrooms um, and these um, what they do is they, they they're an immune modulating substance so they help the um, the immune system recognize um, foreign organ, um, cells mm. so things like bacteria and viruses and um, but they also help recognize um, mutated cells as well and they can sort of they sort of latch on to certain parts of the cell wall of these these cells and it helps the the the, the white blood cells to the, the um, T killer cells, which, which are, whose job is to wipe, get rid of these things, it helps them recognise them more easily. So it makes the immune system more effective in tackling foreign, foreign things, which can cause inflammation. And so it's actually transferring information to these um, white yes, blood it's cells. Yes, it's, sort of, it's, sort of, it's almost like acting like a marker, because especially things like mutation, because they're, they're cells of your, from your own body. And they're not easy for the immune system to recognise. It's kind of like having a mate that knows the forest better than you do, kind of thing. Only it's your yes, body. Yes. <laughs> the mushrooms come in and go. Yeah. You want to watch out for this. <laughs> so they, they they do that. So when when you're being you know under stress from infections and um, mutations, they they can help the immune system deal with that. But they can also um, they also help calm down the immune system when it's overactive. When it starts, when it's attacking the wrong cells, like when it's like you know, um, things like psoriasis and um, those sort of complaints, where, you, where you're actually, actually your own body attacking itself. Yeah. So the white blood cells are getting a bit gung ho in there. Yeah. Make it, it's a case of mistaken identity there. Yeah. They're seeing um, something as an invader and an intruder, and I mean, it's not. No, I'm not sure the exact mechanism of that, but they, yeah. But they they can help. They can. Somehow they can they calm it down. Mm. So they work. They work in both overactive. They, they bring it back to um, the norm. Yeah. They maintain help to maintain it. things tick along as they should. And and what about the different? I mean, that's the it, so that's what's going on with um, the beta glucans is is what's going on with with chaga and turkey tail and yeah reishi. reishi. Um, and shiitakes, shiitakes, yeah. oysters, and seps. Oh right, so we get these benefits from. You would say, it, so are all mushrooms medicinal to a certain extent? To a certain then, extent, yeah. Along these lines, um, with some of them, but, you've, got, you've got to process them to extract the, the beta glucans because it is a, it's a long chain um, sugar molecule, right? Um, which the body can't digest normally. Mm. So you've got to break it down into shorter, shorter lengths so the body can, can take right. it up. So, it's all, yeah, so that's what long boiling and that's what the, the, the boiling is all about. Yeah. But what what is it about these tree fungus that makes them makes them so kind of outstanding? In, in I mean, is it is it that they have more beta glucans or have they got other compounds as well? Some well, like the, chaga, for example. Well, one other thing is um, each. The beta glucan is not a sim not just a sugar. It's, it's got in, in mushrooms. And you get beta glucans in plants, which are just which are just sugars. Right. So oats have got beta glucans in them. Right. Um, but that's <coughs> why oats is one of the reasons oats is such a good food. Yeah. Because of but, the beta glucans. But the difference yeah. between plant beta glucans and mushroom beta glucans is that they've got um, they've got proteins attached to them. Right. And the protein is the proteins are different for each mushroom. Okay. So that's why some mushrooms have got more effective than others because they've got a different protein structure as well as the, the beta-glucan. Yeah. So that's one, one part of it, but then on top of that you've got, uh, you've got what they usually call um, secondary metabolites, hmm. um, which again different for each mushroom. So with something like chaga you're getting um, betulanin and betulinic acid 
which the chagger actually gets from the birch. That's drawing it out of the birch, which yeah. Which is actually drawn from the birch tree and collected in the chagger. But is it, but is it super concentrated in the chagger then? Like, I mean, would you, if you drank litres and litres of birch sap, would you get the same benefit or...? Yes, you get, you, you'll get some of it from the birch sap as well. Yeah. Yeah, but, you're in the, but of course you're not getting the, the beta-glucans, you're just getting the... Yeah, yeah. And, and, and the same betulin and... What was it, betulin? Betulinic acid. So that's also in... Betulinin. So it's in, it's in, yeah, it's in... It's in birch sap, it's in birch twigs, it's in birch leaves, in birch bark. Yeah. It's quite ex particularly concentrated in the birch bark. Right. In the tree, it's using it as a protection. Would that be in the inner bark? In the, in, in the inner bark or it's, the actual... It's yeah. the, um, especially the, the black, the dark mm. bark, so it's on the little twigs. Okay. The little black yeah. bark on the twigs and the, yeah, the inner bark. And then, um, you'll, yeah, you'll find it in chagga, you'll find it in... Birch polypore. Birch polypore, that's what I was going to say, yeah. Tinderhooth, Flam's Flamitaris will have it. Right. All the, all the mushrooms that are growing on the birch tree will be will have it as well. And what do you do with the birch polypore? Because I keep harvesting birch polypore and I've just got this increasing kind of stock of it. And um, We can make it into a tincture. Yeah. The same as you can with the, with the chagger and the, is, 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 the is, tree fungi. But, but if you get it, um, you can also use make a tea with it. Yeah. Uh, but it's better for what, like the the um, is that a good one for d the dual extraction thing where you have the water and the alcohol, or is, is pretty, it pretty most of them, most of the tree fungi, yeah, are going to be good as a dual extraction, yeah, because you're going to get the, the 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 water extraction, you'll get the the beta glucans, right, and, and, it's the, and the and metabolites the are more in the, the most a lot of the metabolites are um, are not water soluble. They're alcohol okay, soluble. I'm starting to understand this now. Yeah. So you say by doing yeah. by doing the alcohol extract, you yeah. you bring out the other the other components, the triterpenes and the uh, phenolic acids. All oh, right. So what are those babies then in terms of medicinal? I mean, they're antioxidants, aren't they? The, the, yes. The, 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 yeah. Yeah. And, they've been, uh, and as they're different. Each, each mushroom has got different things going on. So with the seps, it's got a lot of um, Thing called GABA, huh. which um, affects um, the the brain. GABA, isn't that the thing that Valium works on, like, the, yeah. the, 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 like calms so. you down? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you what the SEPs do for you. That's <laughs> fantastic. Wow. So the SEPs are particularly high in it. But you also get oyster mushrooms. The problem with all of these gamma, gamma yeah. metabutyric acid, I think, what it stands for. All of these bits of information are just just. Makes you realise there's nothing else you should be doing all day that's more important. <laughs> Gathering yeah. enough of this stuff so you've you've, you've got it to hand. Wow. In fact, with the um, with the fly agaric, um, the musk muscimol is is very similar compound to, to um, GABA. Oh, is it and really? it actually actually goes into the same receptors. Right. But it has a different, but it blocks them, which is. Blocks the GABA receptors. That's the toxin. Yeah. That's the thing you don't want to. Yeah. That's not the hallucinogen. It's the. Um, I can never remember which is which. Muscular. I seem to think that's the thing. It's destroyed by heating, isn't it? That's the one that. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, the one that would also make you sick. Um, yeah. But yeah. So that box, yeah, that blocks the GABA receptors in the brain. I should say to people listening to the podcast that we are sitting here in front of um, a large basket of seps. In fact, a little recording device is being nestled yeah. in amongst... Probably about five, five kilos of seps. <laughs> so it's quite uh, topical, to say the least. To, to, and just think about all the calming effects of all of these. I mean, I have to say, I was going to ask you earlier, when we stumbled across all of these seps, like, I was going to yeah. say, Matthew, so I'll ask you now, why do mushrooms make me so happy? <laughs> just, there's just very few things in the world, yeah. and finding these... Seps like we've just found. I'd there just is there is something about it. It's about it's, it's a mixture of the um, well, f the hunt hunting for them. When when you find one, you get a little rush of adrenaline and excitement, and then you, you want to find that what you, you want to find more and more. Yeah. And it's it's such a um, you've got to use so much concentration to actually do it. You've got to be really focused because they they're so camouflaged. But isn't it also like a gift? Isn't every one that you find is like the, the, you just feel like someone's going to go on yes. and have one of these? Yes, <laughs> it is. And, and every one you find <laughs> looks looks better than the one before. <laughs> and they're just so beautiful, though. I mean, honestly, I 
it has got to be something to do with the form. Like the, 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 they are just beautiful, and, yeah. and when you touch them, they've got yeah, they've got lovely feel to them, nice and firm, and slightly velvety on the top. Yeah, they just make you happy. They do just make you happy, but I wonder if that GABA thing is with the seps, it's just that you can feel that GABA vibe before you've even <laughs> eaten them. It could be. Because um, I heard so someone told me about GABA a little while ago, that, that there's a part of the brain, it could be the hypothalamus, but I could be making it up. I don't really know my brain bits as well as I might. But when someone's empathic, when you've, yeah. when you've just told somebody, that, or they can see that you're upset because you banged your knee, or they understand that someone was rude to you today and you're really kind of hurting and someone comes up and is properly empathic and mirrors back to you and goes oh dear you must feel awful and they, and they really hit the spot with what's apparently called mirror neurons they're, they're kind of mirroring your state back to you but apparently it's like the, the, this whether it's the hypothalamus or which bit it is but there's, there's like a dripping of, of this GABA Right. It, it actually drips when when someone is em empathic, effectively empathic towards you. Um, so it's clearly good stuff. Yeah. And that's what makes you feel soothed. You know, you yeah. feel soothed by yeah. that. And unfortunately, it's the same thing that when you take Valium, you, you're kind of using artificial means to kind of kick in those things that ought to happen through um, your relationship to other things. But I, I love the fact that when you eat a food that you found, that's that seems to me... It's not like taking Valium, you know. No, you've, no. you've, this is a proper organism that's 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 soothing you. <laughs> yes. Um, well, yeah. Of course, you're not you're not just getting the GABA. You're getting a whole range of the interaction compounds. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what they do for you. That's that's amazing. Um, Every mushroom has different effects mm. because of the, it's got because they have different secondary metabolites. So oyster mushrooms have got, as well as um, GABA, they've got a thing called ergotheanine, which is becoming big now, and I can never remember quite what it does. <laughs> is uh, that the thing that people with Parkinson's no longer have that in their body? Is that the one? Do you remember I sent be. you it that paper? Be, yes. That, that yes. yes, I think it might be, yep. Which is not to say it cures Parkinson's, but it, it's definitely sort of involved in... Well, it's an interesting compound, because it's, it's something that... Um, it's found in all mushrooms, isn't it? But it's just more in... Yeah, but it's something that mammals um, have receptors for. Right, but can't produce but themselves. But can't produce themselves. So, so that means mammals have to eat mushrooms then? Yeah, they need to get it from their environment, and mushrooms are the biggest biggest source of it. So when we get... I mean, because... I mean, there. Who's been at that? There's a... Is that an animal? That's... It's probably an animal, yes. Yeah. So there's, like, there's like marks on the top of this set. Okay, it's yes. not... I'm not absolutely sure that's what that is, but about this one. Anyway, we do see it all the time, yeah, don't we? we? Like that, 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 that you see scratches on the top of a mushroom. Yeah, that's an animal there. That's a teeth mark. Yeah. So that's a mouse, or it could be probably a mouse. Yeah, in the size of the teeth. And definitely the badger's got. I mean, I've seen scratches on the top of a mushroom, which could only be a badger. Yeah. They sort of knock them over, have a little nibble, and then. And then leave the rest for somebody else for some reason and and then so sort of squirrel sized ones so and the deer eat them we, we used to go to this place called the the wildwood in kent and loads of loads of wild mushrooms in the wildwood so we'd be gathering them while we had a look at so the wildwood is is it's like an it's all the wild animals that are found in england but it's kind of like a zoo in the woods because then they have an enclosure for the different kinds of deer right. they have an area where you can see the badgers underground and there's like a glass thing so you can see the just piled up in a heap as they do during right. the day and it's very sweet and there's squirrels and owls and everything but like the deer are enclosed is the point so they can't get so anything that's not in the enclosure so we would just throw the mushrooms in and see what they'd eat and they, they went for most of them you know most right. of the ones we we just threw them it was like you know feeding time at the zoo but yeah. like with wild mushrooms <laughs> and um so everyone yeah. in the forest is so that, well, they, well they're getting the same benefits that we get from the mushrooms yeah same medicinal benefits. It's well, weird it? that you've got these ones that will also kill you. It's kind of hard to fathom the, the yes, um, yeah, the twists and turns of evolution. That well, again, that comes that comes that comes down to the secondary metabolites. Yeah, which I mean, some of them are just waste products. They're not um, they're not actually used by the mushroom for anything. They're, they're 
the byproduct of the, the metabolism. Sort of metabolism, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the another one is the, is the truffle, which has got a chemical, which is very similar to um, THC. Right. Which you get in cannabis. Um, and again, it's the thing that the truffles haven't got any use for, but it, it has the same effect on on us as THC. But it's a very it, uh, it, the difference between the, the chemical the truffle produces and the THC is that the truffle one is only a um, it breaks down very rapidly, so it's only there for a couple of seconds. So you have to keep eating truffles. So it makes you want to eat more truffles. That's a that's a neat trick, isn't it? Because the truffle wants it wants to be eaten in order to spread its spores. And of course, the truffle also has the the um, the, the beautiful smell of the truffle is actually a the the chemical that the male pig produces as yeah. a pheromone. Yeah. So that's why I mean that the pigs must have been, or boar must have been a key part in the 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 success of truffles in spreading around yes, because yeah. you, you've got you've got so they're, so they're not even not even not only are they producing the smell to attract the, the pigs in the first place but they're also producing this brain chemical to make them want to eat more truffles and find more of them well it's sex and drugs no no rock and yeah. roll yes. <laughs> 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 but yeah you know, i mean most mushrooms are there a, a part of the spore spreading is is, is to attract animals it's either, either eating them or carrying them around so it does it does make an absolute nonsense out of the the kind of hyper anti-foraging brigade yeah. in, in the sort of fungi well, conservation you know, whether, whether it's a mammal or an insect or whatever it is it's there to pick They're up for eating. Mushrooms yeah. are for eating, and 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 that's why that's why they've developed these cunning strategies to make us happy. Yeah, <laughs> it can't just be us. It's, that's yeah. what I was going to say when I said about the animals in the forest. It can't just be us that get so no, I'm sure worked up about this. Like I mean, that pig is getting very worked up about. It, yes, isn't she? Pigs, She's yeah. going, give me more, give me more. <laughs> but you get things like squirrels that will, that will pick mushrooms and and dry them in trees. Really? So they'll carry them up up into a tree and. Impale them on a on a branch oh, that's and And of course, when they're up there, the spores are way up off the forest floor, being spread. Yeah. As the mushrooms drying out, and then the spore will go back later in the year. And well, it. and then of course humans do things like take dried porcini to Australia. Like, yeah. I mean, let me let me ask you about this because you, you may not think that's the explanation, but but the fungi groups um, in South Australia. Yeah really clear there was no porcini there until I, I, think, for, I think it's the same in South Africa as well I, I, I forget when it was but it was like maybe as far back as 2005 I mean it's just I may not remember the story probably but 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 in the last 10-15 years the, the porcini has just appeared all across forests right. in, in, in South Australia and the mushroom recorders are quite clear this wasn't here before now it is so the question is has it eventually just been lucked out, uh, lucked in, or whatever the word is, mm. and and the and the spores have made their way over on 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 winds, or is it because porcini, dry porcini, has been getting eaten more by foodies and and used in restaurants, and some of that has just made its way into the um. Well, the the other possibility is that um, somebody's imported some trees. Ah. Which you've already got the mycorrhizae on the roots. I mean, these are wild forests, though. Where, but I suppose, yeah, if they're just somewhere, somewhere, the and then the, yeah, once yeah. once those trees are planted and the mushrooms fruit, then the spores can get it go where they want. I suppose it doesn't matter what the mechanism is if we're linking it to humans. The the, the, I mean, the, the, the uh, that's supposed to be happened in South Africa was they were planting um, um, northern European conifers. Right. To, for, for wood for forestry. Okay. And now that now it's it's one of the main um, sources of, of porcini in, in the um, off season in Europe. That well, I was aware of all these frozen seps, which I've always thought was a slightly hideous idea. Yeah. Um, coming over from South Africa, because yeah, they're not anything like a fresh sep. But I wasn't aware that the that the the seps were not native to South Africa. I no, they must no, have no, been. no, they're not native there either. Well, of course, that could be it. It could have just—they could just be blowing across to Australia from South Africa, like. Yeah. But, but it's a certainly, way. it's a new arrival. Just well, closer. Can, than I mean, they can travel long, long distances, but there's there's records of or records of um, there's a there's a there's a disease which fungal disease which um, affects 
can affect trees in um, the Caribbean, mm. which is carried over from the Sahara. Yeah. Across the Atlantic, yeah. and you get um, hurricanes going around, circling around the North Atlantic. So they can certainly be carried on way. Mm. I mean, when um, I think when when balloons were first came in, air, hot air balloons, that is. Um, one of the first experiments they did was to send up a, um, some sampling dishes to, to collect um, particles in the upper atmosphere. And then when they came down, they grew them. They were finding mushroom spores all the way up there. So they certainly, they can certainly, once they get up into the upper, they can travel a long way. Yeah. And quite a few, um, quite a lot of mushrooms that are sort of um, have a global distribution sort of either in the nor- northern hemisphere or southern hemisphere as the spores are being circulated around yeah. around the globe and the, on the winds. I mean that's why Garrick certainly gets around doesn't it? The yes that seems to be every, everywhere in the northern hemisphere and probably in the southern hemisphere now I think isn't it? Did you get it in Australia? I don't know but it's, apparently there's a tr- tradition of using it in Japan so yeah it's just about still in the northern hemisphere Okay, yeah, I don't know. Somewhere. Probably is Northern Hemisphere. Then. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, there's only there's only two um, tribes in in sort of Eurasia, which, mm. which traditionally use where well, the shaman traditionally use fly garrick, and one is in one is in Kamchatka, and one is and the other is, is the other laps in uh, Finland and mm. Sweden, Sweden and, yeah. and Northern Russia. And the other, um, the other tribes in between use use other use plants and other other, other materials for psycho- psychoactive effects rather than the fly garrick. Mm. Right, right, right. Are there um, are there mushroom extracts that that actually have um, like antifungal effects for like um, yeah for for like toxic fungal things and all um, well one, one that um, a, friend, a friend of mine um, makes is um, St George's mushroom for Candida okay and it's it's actually just powdered powdered St George's mushroom and you take it in microdosing over, over about 8 days and it clears up the Candida infection because they're because they're fungi. Although you know we get these great new things. You know some of these seps can be half a kilo or more in size. But actually, all mushrooms are, um, are microorganisms. And they're living on that that micro scale. Even though we see these massive fruit and bodies. So how do you can um, you explain so that? In what sense are they microorganisms? Um, because um, the, the main body of the mushroom is, is the mycelium, which is um, this um, single-celled strand running through the soil or through the, through the trees. And it's just as lots joined up together, kind of thing. They're yeah, it forms a forms a massive network. I mean, which means that in actual fact, one of one of the biggest organisms in the world is a mushroom. Um, in North America, is the honey, uh, type of honey fungus. Mm. Which just covers something like 40, 43 square miles of, of forest. But uh, but that, although it's but that, the individual units of that, that are single yeah, single. That the, the, the main yeah the individual part of it is it's working at the microscopic level. Yeah. Um, so it, it it's it's working at, down there with with the bacteria and the viruses right. and the, the molds. Yeah. Because the, the that individual unit is this is this is the thing that that always strikes me when when I when I think about it, especially in terms of like generating a a, a metaphor for how the fungus works, as opposed to how a, you know an animal or a plant works. That the um, you know like because with an animal, like you you have ants and they they form together, and we talk about a super colony. You know yeah. maybe maybe. You know, maybe these trees joined by mycelial networks are kind of super colonies in a way. Um, but anyway, I'm kind of saying that bit first when I should say it last week. So <laughs> the um, the spores 
of a fungus that's microscopic right yeah it's even though we're seeing dust that's like that's because that's, there's loads there's of millions them. of them yeah. yeah yeah so each each individual spore then when it uh, starts yeah, they're, to they're around, yeah they're down i think about five microns in size the average spore and then when that spore does whatever it does i don't know what the word is like for a seed it would well, be germinate what, what would you call I that tend to use the same germinate yeah, kind of yeah. yeah so then it turns into a turn to a hyphae yeah. yeah and then that hyphae is looking around for another one that's like it yeah and it fuses with the compatible hyphae that is yeah. of the same kind but then that happens over and over and over again and that's that so the mycelial mat is basically millions of these individual units yeah and, and kilometers of it but the point is they're fused together to make one entity that's that's the incredible thing to me like there's no, you know plants don't do that animals don't you yeah. know, they are actually i mean in, in in a square inch of soil an area there's underneath that there's a kilometer of mycelium right if you could stretch it all which out is, in a line which is a yeah. bit confusing you yeah measurements yeah. inches but <laughs> Yeah, but if you stretch it all out, yeah, so it's, there's, there's masses of it. It's, you know, it's, big, it's, it's part of it, but it's what's making up all that biomass under under the ground. But that but that makes it so... So like I say, I think that's an amazing metaphor for, for community, that, that all these individual units, that what was a spore and it's now a hyphen, and they're, they're now all linked together, yeah. but they are still these individual units. But their whole life is based on the fact that they're linked together. So for example, they then produce this thing called a mushroom. Yeah, I mean, the thing called a mushroom is just a big whole collection of these these hyphae. Okay. The mushrooms only have one tissue, and it's and that is. So they're making more hyphae then. They're yes. not all coming from the original. That's right. So the yeah. original spores produce the original hyphae, yeah, which then that, fused. That starts but then growing. that starts making more hyphae. Yeah, that grows, and um, and a hyphae is uh, mushrooms are unusual in that they they don't have individual cell walls the cells right so the hyphae ends up being a tube being a tube with lots of nuclei in it oh crikey and the, the nuclei then tend to concentrate with the growing tip so as it's growing they can they can rapidly reproduce and create more hyphae because they need to have more where they're needed instead of back there in the strung, line where strung up along the just, line yeah, yeah. yeah. But it also means that when when the when the mycelium grows into something um, unexpected, like a bit of pollution or um, some bacteria or something, it can it sort of retreats a bit and has a think and works out how it can deal with this this new threat, and then it starts growing again into, into it. Isn't this deal with this new threat? This, this deal with this new threat business somehow connected with what you said earlier about the ability of the beta glucans to get alongside our um, our um, um, yes it's sort of our the antibodies same. To, 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 to do it in a more effective yeah but it's also about the, the mushroom working out how to you know if, if you know for instance if you've got some um Oil or something. It gets, gets, it's worked, it works out how to how it can break down that oil. Oh right. So that's that's what the, the the output for that is that it, that it then produces an enzyme that, that yeah it's it works out to, it works yeah. out what enzymes it needs to produce. Okay. Because because it, they're they're um, digesting stuff externally. They're putting out enzymes into the soil to break, yeah. break things down or into the wood. But why why I was thinking that it, isn't isn't there a story from Paul Stamets about the um, the sarin virus? Didn't didn't um, do you know this one? Matthew? Vaguely. I, I think, if I remember rightly, the US government actually yes. put him on, as th they actually employed him That's right. to work out uh, an antidote for the sarin virus. Yeah. And they used oyster mushrooms. And it took two weeks or something for the oyster mushrooms to figure it out. Yeah. But that must have been, so that's, would that's, that have been so an enzyme that, that they were that producing? To, yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that, that's, the, that's the thing, is, is the, the mycelium going in, they sample it, they come out and work out what to do about it. And then they go back and deal with it. <laughs> we're back and we have the answer to you. <laughs> Get out of the way, we're coming. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's 
extremely clever, isn't it? That's basically what we're it looking is, at. It is, it's quite, yeah. And, and of course that's going, you know, it's not just happening out in the woodland in the, in the forest floor, it's happening inside us with our microbiome. Mm. We've, got, we've got fungi in the microbiome, which can do the same thing. Oh, okay. Same. And are they teaching the bacteria to do stuff, do you think? They're probably, the whole lot's, it's, it's a, again, it's a community and right. the whole thing's working together. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the, the bacteria could be sitting in there counting away. Um, the bacteria are able to count how many, how many cells there are of bacteria. Not only of their own kind, but of other kinds. And um, when, they, when, they, when they measure, when they get to a certain point, they can decide well there's enough enough us now to to um be right. be, a, be a, to be effective and be noticed <laughs> and that's off that's part of what happens when you get when you get a disease ah uh, yeah that's fascinating because I, I heard that, that there's um, there's um there's a an antibacterial thing in um in um the chestnut leaf yeah and the way that works is it screws up the bacteria's trigger yeah so the bacteria has this thing where it says like when there's enough of us we switch this on and now we poison you yeah well this thing works so that you can have that bacteria and not get sick because because they yes, can get to the them, certain level it stops them counting but but the but the chestnut thing goes now you can't count <laughs> so the point is that the, a healthy gut floor is one where where it's working together not yeah yeah well things are balanced yeah nothing is being is over um, nothing is growing is in excess and dominating yeah so yeah I guess that points to the the thing like the, our current paradigm like how do we be here and not dominate you know? um, yeah how can we make our presence gentle instead of you know can we can we be here and, and make room for other things um, Yes, well, when you you know when you think about it, with it, if the you know if the forest or the, the grassland is an organ, is a whole, is a, a single entity, we're like the the bacteria milling around, causing inflammation with our active actions. Right. If we're not if we're over aggressive, you know, you know, handling of it. Well, I think the problem is our methodology. We think we've got a better methodology, isn't it? Like we, we're using the power of computing and the analytical tools of, of which which give us this reductionist worldview. Yeah. So that we can create very powerful effects that we think you know that's the effect we want. But we're quickly realising now that those powerful effects are causing more problems than they are solutions. And and I just think it's incredible when we discuss this kind of complexity and sophistication. Yeah. Craft, and we're, we're just thinking in the short term, right? Um, you know, look for actions. It's it's a it's, it's a short term thing. Just you know, looking a couple of years ahead. Yeah. Rather than looking for future generations. So I think the the the, the tools that we've got allow us maybe to meet these sort of short term aims. Yeah. But like the tools that we've been talking about, that that, that these organisms have, mm. you know, they're not the product of this sort of very um, fast and and kind of overnight sensation of, of the technological revolutions that we've seen in the last couple of hundred years. We, I mean, we just think, wow, isn't that amazing? You know, who could have dreamed of television, and mm. airplanes, and mobile phones and all this internet who could have dreamed but none of that stuff is is anywhere near as sophisticated as no I mean, as what I we're mean, talking about there's some you know so much technology we, we invent stuff and then we once we've invented it we 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 find that nature's already done it you know whether whether it's cameras being the same as eyes or you know sound sound recording stuff the same as our ears and it's just it's, it's all been done before and sometimes more more efficiently more effectively well it would be more effectively simply because it's had billions of years to kind of run and rerun and see which one works and one that didn't work yeah 
It's gone now. <laughs> the, the, the one that worked is the one that kept going. Yeah. Yeah. And we've got that all. Right? But it's, it's like, the, what, what makes me hopeful and cheerful is well, what what we were talking about earlier, like with the the unseen stuff becoming visible, you know, if we can, if we can start saying, hang on a minute, you know, this stuff trails into the absolute invisible distance of the past, you know, mm. in terms of its origins yeah. and its track record and its sustainability, you know, because it's all still here and it's all still working wonderfully together. But if we, if we make that our kind of thing that we engage with rather than this technological stuff that goes back 200 years and is not got a very good track record because look what's happening to us on every level you know maybe we've that's the way for us to track a, a, yeah. a pro projection into the future that goes on for, for for a vastly long time with 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 it all continuing to work in other words not killing everything mm. yeah well I mean you know when you think of technology it's really it's such a short time we've had sort of like I suppose you could say three in the existence of the, of the, the not even the human race, but the, the, the genus Homo. Yeah. yeah there have yeah. been three three technologies that started off with, with flint, and then we got metal. Right. And now we're in plastic age. Right. And the flint technology lasted 400,000 years or more. Metal is about 3,000, and the plastic is what, a couple of hundred maybe a hundred as we've gone from one to the other we've had a bigger and bigger effect mm. on, our, on our environment so maybe the next material has to be organism again yeah you know just get right back into the materials being fundamentally organic yeah I mean not not that you can do everything you can do with metal but like if our method becomes that we find the solutions in um, organic processes rather than in um circuitry and wires and yeah we need we need to harness the or work work with the natural processes instead of trying to control them yeah. well listen it's starting to get dark now i think um yeah the sun's going down we try and find our way back yeah <laughs> lost in the wild wood Just thinking of things we didn't mention while we were sitting under that tree. That's the thing. I know, but so, there's, so, there's so many yeah. things we didn't get round to. So the other two things I'd like to mention is um, you've got your name on on that on, on the Rishi. On the Rishi. Could you tell us about that one? Yeah. So. Um, again, that's linked with my, my sister-in-law. She was she was at a, a, um, a conference of Chinese medicine, and there were people from Q that. People in queue that um, are trying to make up, um, trying to catalogue the herbs used in Chinese medicine. We're talking to her, and, and they didn't realise that Rishi actually grew in this in in the UK. So they were very keen to get a sample of our our one, and they gave it to the mushroom, the mushroom guys over the mycologists over there, and ran lots of tests on it, the DNA and the um, they did three different analyses to check that it really was Ganoderma lucidum. And um, when they sent they sent the results back to us, they came back with um, the name Ganoderma lucidum rooney, our own our own variety. So you have a subspecies of. Yeah. So what is Ganoderma? Oh, it's just a variety. I think. Not, okay. Wouldn't go as far as subspecies. So Ganoderma lucidum is is the um, uh, the mushroom that's traditionally called reishi. Hmm. Um, but it's complicated by the fact that most most of the Chinese. Um, in China, it's called Lingji, it's a Chinese name. Um, and most of the Chinese um, samples that have been sent to Kew are not Ganoderma lucidum, they're, they're other species, um, mainly Ganoderma citronensis and Ganoderma lingji and Ganoderma tropicum. And it's Ganoderma, Ganoderma lucidum is very rare in China. Oh, right. Um, and it's complicated by the fact that in Chinese Chinese medicine they have, um, I think it's about seven different grades of Lingji or types of Lingji. 
So there's a black one, a white one, a red one, a purple one, um, a yellow one. And um, I don't know, I'm just, I, I still don't know whether they're all supposed to be the same mushroom at different states of growth or whether they're different mushrooms which are given the same have similar properties. Um, and then in North America you get, they've got um, a mushroom Ganoderma uh, sugi which they call Rishi which grows on conifers uh, and Stamets is growing Ganoderma resinaceum which, which we get here which grows on oaks and which um, is that the one that, that we found when we went for a walk near yeah, the house? Yeah. That, that's the one that's damaged growing. Yeah, and he's, that's that's the one he's growing for the for the bees. Okay. Um, which has some the same properties as Rishi, and he calls it Rishi. And then there's another species of Ganoderma Ganoderaplanatum, which is the in, in traditional Chinese medicine that's known as the classical Lingxi, Lingxia. Um, which was the mushroom they used before they discovered Ganoderma lucidum, which has it's got similar properties but not as not as potent as Ganoderma lucidum. And the stuff that you cultivate, the the rishi that you cultivate, is is the um is the, the yeah the one that Q um, analysed and it's, it's a Ganoderma lucidum from um, from Suffolk. It's lovely, and um, it's called var variety Rooney. Yeah, Rooney. Thanks. <laughs> So Ganoderma mellustum was first first described in the U, in in Britain in scientific literature from the species that you not, found not not from our one but in, in, it was about 1740 yeah it was first described as a species although it's been used in China for but that is the same variety that's now got your name on it that was that was yes that? well well the, the particular one we've got has got our name on it from 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 Suffolk. So there are, there, you will, so there's other varieties. There will be, yeah. There's others. Okay. Other Canada Melusstems in in Britain. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things about mushrooms is if you've got a mushroom that's growing on on wood, something a saprotrophic mushroom, as opposed to the mycorrhizal ones. Each tree that it that the mushroom grows on is essentially a different variety. Or the, or the mushroom growing on that tree is a different variety to the one on the next tree because it's they they come from two different spores, so they've got a different, slightly different genetic makeup. So it's similar to um, different varieties of apple. You know, they're still they're still the same mushroom, but they've got slightly different characteristics because they come from spores instead of being part of a, a mat of mycelium which is spreading. Right. So you, so yeah. So each each time you find an oyster mushroom on a different tree, it's it's going to have different different characters, different flavour, different texture, different colour. It might come out in a different time of year, might, might prefer cold weather or warm weather, and all those different characteristics which change according to the genetic makeup. So as the as the mycelium grows out it's kind of cloning itself. Yeah. So it's genetically identical but But when you when it's growing from a spore it's you get variations coming in. Mm. Just the same as when you're when you're breeding plants. You know, you're getting different different roses or different different apples or, mm. but it sounds to me like what you're s s saying is that, that there's that in this kind of totally wild culture it's now approximating this variety that you get when you deliberately yes because we crossbreed because so, when we so like plants don't vary to that extent in the wild populations no 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 so what what's the how is it that mushrooms are able to well, achieve think... that kind of variety what, what's what's the um, difference in how they're well, plants do it as well. I mean, you, you, when you find a wild apple, if it's growing from a pip, it, you know, each tree is going to be different. Right. It's going to be a different apple. Okay. So it's, it, it is the same then. It is yeah. the same. Yeah. Okay. But it's you know, it's with man. When man comes along and intervenes, he can exaggerate. Exaggerate. Yeah. yeah. So when we when we're growing the mushrooms, you know, um, we, we're collecting them from the wild. Mm. Um, and cloning them, so taking a cutting essentially, same as you would with a plant, um, so that we keep the characteristics of, of that, that, partic particular that particular one. variety. Yeah. Yeah. And then we we can we can grow that indefinitely, pretty much, and get and retain those those characters just as you would with a plant by taking cuttings and graft, yeah. grafting yeah, onto yeah. a new rootstock. The other thing I want to ask you about is the the, the particular um, benefits that that you, you get when you um, take the lion's mane fungus and 
Well, and the coral tooth in the yeah. image. One of the, the it's not it's not entirely unique. I've heard there's there's another mushroom that has has a similar effect, but not as not as pronounced. Um, it has a, has a chemi- a chemical in it, or several several com- compounds. Um, which promote this thing called nerve, nerve growth factor. Right. And nerve growth factor is, is, the chemi- is the chemical in our bodies which makes, which repairs nerve damage. So it's, um, it helps things like um, um, degenerative nerve diseases like Alzheimer's and mm. Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis, multiple neurone disease. And you've actually seen that with, with a couple of friends, haven't you? You were saying to yeah. me the other day, your friend was having trouble doing his Sudoku. Yes, I mean, that, yeah, he, he, was, he, was, he used to do the, the, um, uh, the most difficult Sudokus sort of on a regular basis, and then he found that he, over time he, 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 he stopped being able to do it, and eventually he couldn't even do the easy ones, it was just making silly mistakes. And then he was taking, he took, he took some, uh, some of our lion's mane over a few weeks, and he was back up doing the difficult ones again, so, which is sort of a you know it's a silly example, but it just shows you that it, it um, it's amazing. It shows it works. And that's the effect, that effect on the cognitive effect. And you had a friend that that, that Parkinson's. That yes, a friend. A friend of mine's mother had Parkinson's disease, and she she was taking the lion's mane. Um, and when she went for a regular checkup with the doctor, which is I think it's every two or three years. It's not it's not every year. Um, he told her it was it was amazing because her, her condition hadn't hadn't changed from the last time he saw her. it. You know, it's, it should be a, it would get worse. Should be a degenerative disease, yeah. but she she'd stayed stable. I mean, would would lion's mane help in the case of, of actual brain damage? Do you think like head injury type brain damage? Possibly. I mean, I don't know how. Has anyone? Do you think is anyone looking into that? Um, I'm sure they are somewhere. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know how how um, how much damage it can actually deal with. I mean, that, you know, it's quite a severe case. It certainly works for the, the more um, slowly mm. developing nerve damage. But you know, it, it should work for you know tra- um, traumas to the to other parts of the nervous system as well. In theory. Thanks for listening to the Worldwide Podcast. And um, yeah, it really is, I will just mention, um, a fantastic season for SEPs just now. We, we, we've been picking some, uh, as mentioned in, the, in the, um, the main conversation there, and we've been picking quite a few since. And I must say, having been eating them for breakfast every day, I don't know. I do think I'm feeling quite, um, quite a lot calmer than usual. So... I'm choosing to put that down to the effects of GABA found in the SEPs. So that's a turn up for the books. I don't know. Perhaps perhaps just I like SEPs so much it just makes me happy. But uh, I kind of like to think it is it is the effect of that neurotransmitter, which I've just discovered is um, a secret little ingredient in Pulcini, SEPs, Penny Bun, however you want to describe them. Okay, well, that's it for this week's Worldwide Podcast. Uh,